0: John chapter 6, we're going to be uh, beginning this chapter this morning in our study of John's gospel. And let me read this to us John 6, 1 through 21. After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. And a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. Lifting up his eyes then and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered him, Two hundred denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, "'There is a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, "'but what are they for so many?' "'Jesus said, "'Have the people sit down.' "'Now there was much grass in the place, "'so the men sat down, about 5,000 in number. "'Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, "'he distributed them distributed them to those who were seated, "'so also the fish, as much as they wanted.' And when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, gather up the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. And when the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. When evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, got into a boat, and started across the sea to Capernaum. It was now dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. The sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing, and when they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat." And they were frightened. But he said to them, It is I, do not be afraid. Then they were glad to take him into the boat. And immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. The Word of the Lord. So, out of all the things we have seen in John's Gospel thus far, uh, today we come to the first story of Christ that we've encountered that is also presented in all three other gospels in matthew mark and luke what are known as the synoptic gospels in fact this is the only miracle of jesus that we find in all four gospels if you remember we said that the gospel of john actually starts the story of jesus's ministry earlier than the three synoptic gospels and now we're starting to catch up to the synoptics Um, But Matthew, Mark, and Luke primarily concerned themselves with Jesus's ministry in and around Galilee, which is that region in the north of Israel where Jesus was originally from. John, however, is more about Jesus' ministry in Judea, the southern region of Israel that is around the city of Jerusalem. In fact, John 6, which we begin today, is really the only chapter in John's gospel to go in-depth on Jesus' time in Galilee. And by chapter 7, we're going to be headed back to Judea around Jerusalem. But today in Galilee, we find one of the most famous scenes in the Gospels, the feeding of the 5,000, and what follows, which is Jesus walking on the water of the Sea of Galilee. But here's my question to us today. What what is the point of this story? What is the point of this story? Other than simply recounting the facts of events to us, what is it that John—or maybe I should ask, what is it that God wants us to learn about Jesus— Um, And about who he is and what he's come to do Here are uh, just a few common takeaways from the feeding of the 5,000 Four common takeaways from the feeding of the 5,000 First of all, God can do a lot with a little God can do a lot with a little, right? Uh, That's true Uh, Jesus does take a small amount of food and he multiplies it to feed a multitude Uh, Note that only men are being counted here. Uh, The text says about 5,000 men. That would not have been uncommon at the time for only men to be counted. Uh, By some estimates, though, this crowd could have actually been 15,000, 20,000 people taking into consideration women and children as well. Uh, But even if it's only 5,000, that's still a lot of people to feed with a couple of fish and a few loaves of bread. So God can do a lot with a little a second common takeaway is that God uses people to bless people God uses people to bless people. Jesus is the power behind this miracle But the disciples are the ones who find and distribute the food And did you notice the question that Jesus posed to philip? Jesus basically asked one of his disciples. Hey, what are we going to do? Where are we going to get bread to feed all of these people? He, he kind of puts the burden onto his followers. In Matthew's account of this event, Jesus looks at his disciples and says, you give them something to eat. God uses people to bless people. Even after Jesus multiplies the food, it is then the disciples who distribute it. It's then the disciples who pick up the remains as well. A third common takeaway is that nothing is too big for God. Nothing's too big for God. This is a true miracle. And my read here is that it is outside the expectations of Jesus's disciples, even though they've seen incredible things, uh, even though they've seen Jesus uh, create vats of wine at the wedding at Cana. They are still primarily thinking in temporal terms, not in supernatural terms. Uh, Jesus, we don't have enough money to go buy enough bread to feed all of these people. Even though they have witnessed incredible stuff, they have yet to come to the place where they expect Jesus to do incredible supernatural things. And yet nothing is too big for him. And then fourth. And this may be unexpected, but a common takeaway is that there is power in prayer. You may not have noticed it, but before the food was distributed, Jesus gave thanks for the bread and the fish. Which is interesting because John has already well established that in the beginning... ...was the Word, and the Word was the Son of God, and the Word is Christ himself, and that through the Word all things were made. So the one without whom there wouldn't even be bread and fish gives thanks to God for the bread and the fish. In fact, uh, John's gospel, perhaps more than any of the other three, gives us a significant peek into the prayer life of Christ... And that kind of culminates in John 17 with what is known as the high priestly prayer. Um, And I think a takeaway for us there is that if Jesus needed to pray, well, well, so do we. Um, And perhaps even more so. So to recap, God can do a lot with a little. God uses people to bless people. Nothing's too big for God. And there's power in prayer. And, And listen, I think all of those things are true. But they all easily become platitudes, don't they? Platitudes, uh, sentiments that are devoid of meaning and power or empty words. A definition of a platitude is a remark or a statement, especially one with moral content, that has been used too often to be interesting or thoughtful. It's been used too much to be interesting or thoughtful. Life has beat you down, and the road ahead seems insurmountable, but don't worry, nothing's too big for God. Okay, thanks. You're barely making ends meet, you're living off loans, suddenly you've got a $2,000 repair on your car. Don't worry, God can do a lot with a little. That's true. That's true. Do I still have to pay for my car, right? Do you guys see what I'm getting at? Here's the problem with platitudes like this. Even though they are true, they can make it sound like the real problem in your situation is that you just don't have enough faith. As if more faith would make all the problems and issues in your life just go away. Hey, God's got this. You need to let go and let God. I was at a, a little pastor's gathering in Austin this week, and I walked in the bathroom of the church that we were at, and hanging over the back of the toilet was one of those wooden you know, signs from Hobby Lobby that said, let go and let God. And I wasn't sure if that was intentional or not. <laughs> Platitudes. And these can easily devolve into the notion that if things aren't going right in your life, it's because you simply don't have enough faith or you don't have enough trust, like, like it's like a punishment for your lack of faith in some way. But listen, faith is not simply a work that you do. Faith in the scheme of the, of the scriptures is not just something that you, through your own strength and power, muster up. As if, if I can just do it well enough, then God is going to bless me somehow. No, no, no. What scripture suggests to us is that faith is actually something that God does within us. That, and, and John's going to touch on this, and I'll mention it in just a moment, but, but Paul is really the one who unpacks it more fully. In Romans 12, 3, he says, "...for by grace, by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think." Which is just great advice, isn't it, right? Paul says, because I have a recognition of the grace that has been given to me by Christ. Remember, Paul had been an opponent of the church. He had been involved in murdering other believers. And, and he recognizes, man, I have been extended this unbelievable grace by Jesus Christ. And in light of the grace that's been given to me, I recognize how like totally incapable I am of doing anything right of saving myself, of being somehow good enough to win my way into God's good graces, that ship sailed a long time ago. Paul says, I recognize that because of who Jesus is and because who I am, I should not think of myself more highly than I actually am, right? And and what I actually am is I am a sinner desperately in need of grace. And having received it, it just gives me an even deeper sense of my own humility my own need of God. So so don't think more highly than you ought to of yourself, he says, but he goes on, but think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. Isn't that interesting? He says, I have been extended grace, and also God has assigned each of us a measure of faith. So Paul seems to be saying here that faith is a gift that God gives to us and that faith is perhaps measured out to people differently. And that's fine because what Jesus tells us is that all you need is like faith the size of a mustard seed. Another place where Paul touches on this gift nature of faith is Ephesians 2 in verses 8 and 9. He says, for by grace you have been saved through faith. Here he's using some of the same language It is grace that has been extended to us, and we have been saved through faith. And what he says is, this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. In other words, faith is not a work. It's it's not just something that I've cobbled together, and somehow, even though I'm completely inadequate and incapable of reconciling myself to the Father, somehow I've cobbled together enough faith to be reconciled to him. No, no, no. Paul says, this is not your own doing. It's a gift. It's not a result of your works. The real takeaway from the gospels for me is, is not something like that. If, if you and I just had more faith, our problems would go away. It's not that. In fact, Jesus is not so much asking you to do something different as much as he is inviting you to be something different. And I think that that's a big part of what John wants us to take away from both Jesus' message and Jesus' miracles. It's incumbent in that imperative statement to Nicodemus, you must be born again. Emphasis on the must. It's not, hey, you need to um, believe right theology, even though that's certainly important. He says, you must be transformed. It's not just something in your mind that needs to happen. It's not just your outward actions that need to be changed in some way. It's not just a behavior modification thing. No, no, no. You have to be transformed. And what he's not saying to Nicodemus, this is back in chapter 3. He's not saying, Nicodemus, you need to rebirth yourself, right? Right? Jesus is saying, you must look to me. If you go back to that chapter, Jesus says, I am like the serpent elevated in the wilderness, and all who look to me will be saved. John's perspective is that belief in Jesus as the Christ is the starting place for rebirth. In fact, out of the something like 250 times that the New Testament uses the Greek word for belief, at least a hundred of those are here in John's gospel. It is what he says over and over again. And even more interesting, John never uses, so so I've read, John never uses the noun form of belief or faith. He always uses the verb form. He always says believe, or he talks about believing in Christ. So it's not just a concept that he's getting at. There is like a a response that he's getting at. There is action that he's getting at. And, And listen, I don't think that belief and faith are disparate things for John. I don't think he thinks of those as two completely different things. In fact, I think for John, belief and faith are deeply intertwined. Um, theologians today may nuance those two ideas out and parse them out to some extent, but the, the Greek root word for both belief and faith is the same word. And so there is, there is a deep intertwining of these two things. Whoever believes in him, John says, will not perish but have eternal life. But Paul said, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. So somehow both of those things are true. Those who believe in Christ will have eternal life, and those who have faith that has come from God, it's not our own doing, will be saved. We're talking about the same thing here, guys. Paul could have just as easily said, for by grace you have been saved through believing in Christ, through faith in Christ. And here's why I say that. For both John and Paul, this, again, is not simply something you muster up. It is something God gives to you. Look down with me at verse 41 of chapter 6. We didn't read this earlier, but it's central here, and we're, we're going to unpack it even more next week. After all this happens, after feeding the 5,000, after walking on water, after the mass crowds of people out following him around, Jesus says to the Jews who are bothered by all of this, He says, Not only do I give bread to the people, I am the bread that comes from heaven. In other words, I am the manna, right? I am the manna. Verse 41 So the the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, Is not this Jesus the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? Right? Doesn't he come from Nazareth? Jesus answered them, do not grumble among yourselves. Listen, no one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the father comes to me not that anyone has seen the father except he who is from god he has seen the father truly truly i say to you whoever believes has eternal life i am the bread of life your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died this is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die and jesus is using all of these different metaphors in in, in much the same way you remember the woman at the well hey if you drink the water from this well you're eventually going to be thirsty again like it is water it does satisfy but only briefly like you're going to have to come back here and get this again but I have living water and if you drink it you will never thirst again I'm the bread of life and just like God sent down bread from heaven in the wilderness for your forefathers they would eat the bread but then they had to go out and gather bread again the next day and they tried to hoard the bread it would all go rancid and they couldn't it and even when they ate the bread that came from heaven they eventually died I am a different kind of bread even though I'm also bread that comes from heaven I'm the kind of bread you eat you're never going to need bread again and I'm the bread that brings life I think this is a central text for this chapter, and also for John in general. John's gospel is largely a story of people who see the works and hear the words of Jesus and believe, and then also people who see the works and hear the words of Jesus and don't believe. And as John tells us from the beginning, it will largely be Jesus' own people who don't believe. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him the ultra-religious Jews. At the end of chapter 5, Jesus basically said, the things I'm saying and the things I'm doing are all so that you may believe. In other words, one of the primary ways that God is drawing people to believe is through the word and works of Christ. Chapter 5, verse 24, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity puts it this way He says, I'm trying here to prevent anyone from saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him, him being Jesus, which is this I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. Lewis says, that's the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sorts of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with the man who says he's a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the Son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. Now it seems to me, Lewis says, it seems to me obvious that he was neither a lunatic nor a fiend, and consequently, however strange or terrifying or unlikely it may seem, I have to accept the view that he was and is God. So again, Lewis says he's either a lunatic or he's the devil or he is the son of God. And this is actually not a concept that is original to Lewis. Um, At least a century before, Scottish preacher John Duncan called this the trilemma, as opposed to the dilemma, it's a trilemma. And Duncan writes, Christ either deceived mankind by conscious fraud, or he was himself deluded and self-deceived, or he was divine. There is no getting out of this trilemma, Duncan says. It is inexorable. Inexorable means you can't escape it. You can't prevent it. But listen, these arguments really only relate to Jesus' words. Like if we're just looking at Jesus' words, he's either a lunatic or he's the devil or he's God. But then when you bring his miracles into the mix as well, when you bring in the feeding of the 5,000... And other things that takes us to a whole other level, and I, I really think it goes from being a trilemma to being a dilemma, right? And this seems like the issue that the Jews were wrestling with. They could dismiss him if all he was doing was preaching. Yes, he's saying things that are blasphemous to them, but he's just he's just out there preaching in the wilderness, and to some extent, we can dismiss him. But then he feeds twenty thousand people. Right? And then he heals a guy who was an invalid for 38 years. And then he walks a few miles across the Sea of Galilee. And what do you do with that? Now all of a sudden, he's not just saying things that are controversial. He's now doing things that we don't know how to respond to it. And John has given us a little glimpse into some of the conversations Among some of the Jews at this point in time And they're really faced with this dilemma Like the idea of him just being crazy is off the table It's either he has come from God Or he has come from the devil or he is the devil Those are the only two things they can come up with So here's the question I think John's presenting You and me with What say you? As you read the story of Christ, as you read the message of Christ, as you see the miracles of Christ that are presented to us here in his word, who do you say that he is? Friends, this is not something that any of us can afford to be on the fence about, nor is it something that you can only pretend to believe because it's what you think people expect of you or because... It helps you get along with your family or your social group or whatever. To pretend to believe is to not believe. To go through the motions of religious activity to appease others is not to believe. And yet God has given us his word, his only begotten son, who doesn't just come preaching. He doesn't just come proclaiming things, but he comes preaching and healing. He comes declaring the truth of God's kingdom and demonstrating the truth of God's kingdom. I've said this before, but it just seems so true to me that Jesus is not only saying in my father's kingdom, here's what things are like, but also through his restorative work, through feeding, through healing, through driving out demons, through bringing people people back from the dead, he is also saying, in my father's kingdom, these things don't exist. And if you want that, belief is the doorway into this new life, this transformed life, this rebirth. This is why John calls the feeding of the 5,000 yet another sign It is something that proves Jesus' identity. But let us not diminish this incredible mystery of grace and faith with empty platitudes. But instead, let us truly submit our lives to Christ, who is our life, as Paul says, in faith, so that we can be reborn and made new. And it's possible... That the Father is drawing you to him today. And also, if you are a follower of Jesus already, know that the Father has never stopped drawing you to him. In our uh, evangelical culture, we have this uh, notion of the moment of salvation. Um, And certainly there are significant spiritual moments in the lives of the apostles and people in the early church. And yet, the primary witness of Scripture is that Um, any moment that you think of as the moment of salvation is simply the beginning of a life spent in obedience to Christ. It is not the penultimate moment. In fact, for many of us, what we find is that there is only greater maturity to come after that moment. But if we look at it as a transactional thing, as something we do to appease other people in our life or something that we go through in a ritualistic way without actually believing in our heart that Jesus is Lord, then it does nothing for us. It's not real. And if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, he has never stopped drawing you. He is still seeking that you would turn over more and more of your life and yourself to him in obedience, that you would submit your very being to him, All the way. And that is the work of sanctification that he is doing within us. And so let us not reduce that to, hey, God's got this, or let go and let God. But let us sit in the incredible gravity and mystery of what God has done for us through his son Jesus Christ. And praise the Lord, it doesn't all depend on me, right? And you. Praise God that it's not up to me to get this right so that somehow my eternity can be secured. Praise the Lord that this is dependent on Christ who is perfect and has perfectly fulfilled God's will and has perfectly fulfilled the law and was obedient even to the point of death so that his perfect righteousness could be given to us in faith, that his righteousness could be laid on us like a blanket so that when God looks at us, he doesn't see us, he sees Christ. He sees his perfection and his grace is poured out to us because of who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. Amen? And then what happens is our outward life comes to reflect what has happened internally. Some ritual we went through, but of what God is actually doing to transform us and change us and rebirth us. It starts inside, and then it works its way outside into our members, into our bodies, into our actions, into our thoughts. I'm going to leave you with this this morning. The writer of Hebrews says this in chapter 2 of Hebrews. He says, at present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. And Lord, isn't that true? Right as you, re- as you read the news, watch the news, uh, we had another shooting in our neighborhood yesterday. It's like, man, this place is clearly not in subjection fully to Christ yet. We do not yet see everything in subjection to him, but, he says, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone this is what he has done for us and John says if you believe if your faith is in the person and work of Christ you will not die you will see eternal life Praise God. Let us go to him in prayer this morning as we thank him for what he has done. Father, truly your kindness is on display this morning, not only in the words of Jesus, but in his restorative action as well. And I'm struck by the fact that after Jesus fed all of these people, uh, they wanted to try to, like, take him and start a rebellion to. F- force the Romans to somehow let him be king. And, And yet Jesus wanted no part of that. Because he had not come to be some kind of earthly king. Even though that's what people thought they wanted or thought they needed. Father, you knew better. And you knew that what we really needed was not some military leader and it wasn't just simply somebody who would sit on an earthly throne but we needed the kind of king that could sacrifice himself so that we might not might not taste death who would taste death for us so that his righteousness could be given to us and god even though many of us have heard that good news i pray that it is not lost on us i pray that Though we have been blessed to grow up in in a Christian culture and perhaps in the church and perhaps in Christian homes, some of us, Lord, I pray that these words don't become empty platitudes, that they don't become these pithy sayings that at the end of the day don't hold a lot of water for us or meaning for us. But Father, rather, I pray, God, that we would truly be pricked in our hearts by the things you have done. Even though we know them, God, may we continually be amazed and awed by your grace. Father, we love you and we thank you for your goodness, and it's in your name, amen.